0: Well, thank you, Matt and band, and uh, everybody else was a part of that. I'm down here on the second floor now. I've seen many of you up on the third floor, and I can tell you that down here was a little bit thumpy down here on the second floor. I don't know about you people up on the third floor with your arms all crossed, but a little bit freer down here. So welcome. My name is Eric Barton. And I get to be one of the pastors here at Bethel Bible Church in downtown Tyler, Texas. And since we just sang about only Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus here in just a moment. At length, I hope, Jesus willing. But before I do that, I want to draw special attention to a new life group that we are very excited that is forming up. Tyler Sullins, as many of you know, is uh, the deacon at this campus that is responsible for herding all of the cats and parakeets that are all of our life groups. There's a new life group that is forming up sort of at the uh, direction and prayerful participation of John and Christine Toon, who love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. We love the tunes; They're awesome this life group is specific. It doesn't have to be just for Bethel downtown people. It is specifically for families that are dealing with issues such as children who are abled differently or who have mental health issues, or perhaps even foster care situations or learning differences or all sorts of those things for parents and families that need support, that need to be able to come together in Christ-centered community to work out life together. If you'd like more information on that, you can find... Tyler Sullen's contact information in the bulletin. You can also talk to John and Christine. They're amazing. So be praying about that. Perhaps you can be a part of that. Perhaps you can even be a part of supporting what they're doing. Now, this morning, as I mentioned, I want us to talk about Jesus Now, we as Bethel Bible Church, we spend a lot of time in Sunday morning sermon series talking through typically an entire book of the Bible. That means we unpack it verse by verse, and generally speaking, we like to spend a lot of time in the New Testament, not because we prefer it over the Old, it's not that. It's just that the apostles tended to write so practically, so precisely to the first century churches that a lot of what they wrote in the epistles for example, to the Ephesians or Galatians or when Peter writes or when John writes, it's so immediately practical and pertinent for us. Sometimes we like to go to the Old Testament and we sort of prepare for and point to the coming of Messiah and the glory, the grandeur, the greatness of the gospel. We generally don't do things that are topical in nature and that's what we are all about here at Bethel. We want the point of the passage to be the point of our preaching. Whatever the text is saying, that's what we teach. Whatever the scripture says, that's what we speak. And so we want to continue that even here in the summer month of August as we're just getting started. We're going to do a little mini-series on the early life and ministry of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you and invite you to open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Oftentimes the Gospel of Luke gets used, you know, right about when Charlie Brown Christmas is coming out in late November, early December, and then Luke sort of gets you know pushed to the curb until Easter time. But We want to spend some time in the Gospel of Luke because it's marvelous. It's absolutely wonderful. So our text this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Just like the Spirit of God is always pointing to the Son of God, We, as the people of God in this age, we want to major on the major theme of our lives that Jesus is. We're going to spend a few weeks in this early part of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see with incredible clarity what is our big idea for this morning and hopefully for the month of August. It goes like this. It's very simple. Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man. But that might not mean what you think it means. But it is, in fact, the overarching theme of the entire Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the man, he is the Commander of the armies of the hosts of the myriads of heaven he's the man he is one hundred percent human now that's going to be very important as we begin to unpack this all throughout human history since Genesis chapter three, way back when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the serpent won the day. People had been looking forward with great anticipation and expectation for the gospel. What would God do to rectify and remedy and reconcile and redeem the fallenness of humankind? Because people cannot solve their own problem. What would God do? They were waiting for the gospel. And when we say the gospel, we mean very precisely the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's why studying a gospel is so important, a gospel account like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, because it shows us this is how God entered into the midst of our mess with Messiah. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 4. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and then we'll unpack it and see how we can apply it. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Now, to help us understand and really get this passage into our beings, I need to do a little bit of external explanation. When I say external explanation, I mean talking about the text, not what's in the text, to help us sort of establish the context of what's going on in this book and what we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. The four gospel accounts that you have in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, appear in the New Testament, and that's good. Good because it's a dawning of a new age, but it really helps to understand the four gospel accounts if you think of them as actually Old Testament books. Now, literarily, they appear in the New Testament, and that's totally fine, but historically, what's going on, they are still Old Testament books. The audience is still primarily and particularly Israel. It is God dealing with Israel, There is no church yet in the gospel accounts. We have a tendency, an error, to read the gospel accounts and go, oh, that's talking about me, that's talking about my church. No, it isn't, and no, it isn't. We don't meet the church until Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God is poured out and indwells every redeemed believer. That's what the church is, the new covenant community of the Spirit. The church doesn't exist in the gospels, and if you don't know that, you'll read it all kinds of wrong, thinking that you're Israel and you're not. Jesus says some very strange things in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and 25. And if you think it's talking about the church, you'll misapply it all over the place. So, the gospel accounts are effectively and essentially Old Testament books. I also want to remind us that in the gospel writers' original writing, there was no chapter nor verse markings. They didn't break it up in chapter and verse. We added that only about 500 years ago, and we didn't get it right every single time. It's not inspired. What Luke writes is right after what he writes in the previous section, which is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you really want to give someone a power nap, just read somebody a biblical genealogy. They will flatline in nobody's business time. They're gone. Immediately before this passage, Luke gives us a very lengthy genealogy. And it's interesting, Matthew also gives us a lengthy genealogy, and they're noticeably different. Why is that? Well, because one's wrong and one's right. Absolutely not. I assure you, they are both completely correct. They're just emphasizing different aspects of the coming of the Messiah. We're not going to deep dive into all that right now. Suffice to say that Matthew's point, as he's writing primarily to a Jewish readership, is that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Matthew's genealogy focuses on a few sets of 14 generations saying that Jesus comes from Abraham through David. And as such, he is the Davidic king who will fulfill all the Abrahamic blessings and promises. That's Matthew's point. But Luke doesn't do that. Luke actually gives us 77 names. There's a lot of theories as to why that is. Buy me a donut later. We'll talk about it. 77 names. And it's slightly different because Luke doesn't start with Abram and move forward in time. Luke starts with Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, and he ends with God. Luke begins with Joseph to say that this is the Son of God by incarnation, and he ends with Jesus, the Son of God, by creation. No, 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 not offspring. From before the foundations of the earth, this Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we have to know all that because a genealogy establishes right and privilege and a title This is who this Jesus is, Theophilus. Remember that Luke is writing about the birth of the Christ. The book of Acts is the birth of the church. And he's writing to Theophilus, the lover of God and the loved by God. Let me tell you about Jesus. He goes all the way back, not just for Jews. He's the Savior, not just for Israel, for all humankind. See, Luke is the only writer in the New Testament that's a Gentile his scope is a little bit broader. He wants these Greeks, these Gentiles to understand that Jesus is the man. So let's look at this, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'll read it again. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Ah, see, Jesus is not merely our righteousness, though he is. The righteousness of God is the currency of the kingdom, and Jesus is full of righteousness. He is our righteousness, but he's also our example. Hear this Well meaning, devout Christians all the time. What does it mean to be saved? Jesus, and then they do this one word Jesus, die for my sins. Yes, Jesus did in fact die for your sins. But that's not enough. It's not enough to have your sin removed. You must also be filled with the righteousness of the Son of God to have right standing before God. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He is our righteousness, but He's also our example. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan where He had been baptized where God says, this is the one. This is the one, singular, the one and the only one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do what he says. Follow him where he goes. There's nobody else with whom God is pleased in their own effort, strength, and identity. Only this one. Follow him. And the spirit of God comes down upon Jesus. Interestingly, the text says, everywhere his baptism is described, like a dove. Why is that? It's like the story of Noah, the dove alights, and it's a new creation, a new beginning, and the ministry of Jesus marks the dawn of a new era, a new age, a new beginning, and a new creation, and so Jesus, full of this Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's interesting, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will teach the disciples, and when you pray, pray like this, and lead us not into temptation, Yet Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into temptation so that we would never have to undergo that experience. Do you see what this man, this Jesus does? He goes by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was, (laughs) and this is understatement, he was hungry. I can't go 40 minutes without a mouthful of Cheez-Its, and I'm getting fussy. This guy went 40 days, and the text simply says he was hungry. It's very interesting. So God has just affirmed that this Jesus is the one with whom he was pleased, but how is it going to go morally? Is Jesus, the man, going to be morally qualified to be Savior? This last Adam is not going to face the exact same type or kind of temptation that the first Adam experienced in the garden. Now, it is doubtful that Luke, the gospel writer, had already read 1 John, the epistle of the apostle John written to the church in Ephesus and surrounding areas. But... Luke does something interesting. He changes up the order of the temptation, I think, to very closely match the order of temptation that John gives us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Check this out. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." Verse 16 is the key. For all that is in the world, and then John tells us, these three ingredients to the casserole of temptation, sin, destruction, and death, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, I don't know that Luke had any access to that letter that John had written the church in Ephesus, but his organization of the temptation follows that process precisely. Luke changes it so that it's a little bit different from Matthew. Luke does not affirm that that's the order in which it happened. In fact, Luke says he's tempted for a solid 40 days. We don't know what other temptations were taking place. During that 40 days. But there is an intentional comparison and a contrast with Adam. Adam was in a plush, perfect environment, a gorgeous, glorious garden. Jesus was in a barren desert wilderness. In fact, in Hebrew, that region that he was wandering around is called destruction. You can go there today, you can walk around with a study tour group, let's just say hypothetically 2017, which I did with some of you, and I had you wander around in there, and after about 30 minutes, y'all were throwing rocks at my face. It's a very hot, rugged, desperate destruction kind of a place. Jesus is out there for 40 days. Adam in the garden had his wife, his companion with him. Jesus was all alone. Adam was well-fed Jesus was very hungry, can we say that again, 40 days, was starving. Adam was in the environment of God. Jesus was in the domain of Satan. All of those environmental factors did not help Adam. And all of those environmental factors did not thwart Jesus. See, Luke wants us to understand this Jesus, he's the man Jesus is, man, but there's actually even more going on there. Remember, Jesus is the culmination and the recapitulation of all of the Old Testament and Israel's movements and failures, and movements and failures. Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness with no bread, having to trust God for survival and supply. How'd they do? Well, they grumbled in every language imaginable, and they threw rocks at Moses' face as often as they could find them. Ah, but this one man, this Jesus, he goes 40 days in the same wilderness, trusting God for all that he needed. How did Jesus do? Never sinned in thought, word, or deed, because Jesus is the man. Now, we have a tendency to hear stories like this and go, well, Jesus, out in the wilderness for 40 days, and it was hot, and he fasted four days, and he didn't eat." well, yeah, of course he can do that. He's God. I'm just little old me. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus is the man. Jesus is 100% human. What he did in his strength was done in the same strength and power that is available to each of us. He laid aside his divine prerogative and he relied only and solely on the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit that God would supply his every need. Part of our faith and understanding of Jesus is our recognition and a realization that Jesus is the man. I've said this before. I want to say it again. I want to disabuse any and all of us of this error. Jesus was not a superhero. We have had a tendency in the 20th and 21st century of making a comic book hero out of Jesus. Like He sort of looks like us. He's kind of Clark Kent, but at any moment, he could just tear open his shirt in a phone booth. There were no phone booths back then. They had Android phones. Anyway, at any moment, he could just like and zap everybody. That's a comic book. It's not real. Jesus was 100% human, and he relied only on the leading of the Spirit and the will of the Father. He did not every now and then just wink over there and get himself a parking spot at the mall. Never once. Never Always, only in his humanity, did he conduct his life and his ministry. And when you begin to ponder that and consider that and to contemplate that, he wasn't just gritting his divine teeth and taking the scourging at the cross. He's a hundred percent human, and for 40 days he ate nothing, and the devil tempted him relentlessly for 40 days. Now that ought to convict us of, oh, perhaps I've been looking at this a little bit wrong. Well, Luke is going to give us these threefold uh, categories of temptation. The first we, hear, we have here in verses 3 and 4, the desires of the flesh. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, the devil knows. Because the devil was created by him. Not, he's not wondering, yeah, are, are you, did I see you at the Feynman bar mitzvah? No, no, no. He knows exactly who this Jesus is. It's since you are the Son of God. Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man should not live by bread alone. Every single time Jesus is tempted, he responds with scripture. But not just any scripture. Every time it's from Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8, he's hearkening back to Israel's issues in the desert where Moses had to continually instruct Israel, the son of God. See, Israel believed that Adam had been the son of God, but he lost that title. And so Israel was the new son of God and that's true but they rebelled over and over and over again and so now true Israel the son of God has come into the wilderness. And so he's referring to how Israel should have been but was not. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. The devil's trying to thwart Jesus. He's trying to say listen since you can do these things, you can turn that to bread, of course you do. then you should do that. No one will get hurt. No one will be the wiser. It doesn't really matter. And you'll feel good. You'll feel better. This might sound totally hypothetical to you, but by the way, this is how our temptation goes as well. Because you can do that. You can get away with it. It's a victimless crime. Nobody's going to know. It doesn't matter. Go for it. Jesus will have none of that. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 talking about Israel in the same circumstance, where in Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells them, God has placed you here, Israelites, so that you're hungry, so that you will know that God will sometimes surprise you in the way that he supplies your need, so that you will always look to him and your faith will grow. And Jesus responds to Satan like, oh, no, you don't. I'm the son of God. I don't think like you. I don't operate like you. That temptation will not work on me. Again, he's not just our righteousness, he is our example. This first set of temptation, Jesus tempts or say Satan tempts Jesus to question the Father's love, but Jesus won't have it. Verses 5 to 8 is the desires of the eyes. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. We don't know how he does this. The devil's got some power, some tricks, we don't know. The thought and the idea, the language seems to be that the devil is able to show Jesus All the kingdoms, all the empires, all the nations of the world all at once through space and time. And what Jesus sees is not just all the people that are alive or that will ever be alive. There's all the suffering, all the disease, all the death, all the violence, all the the hurt, all the relational catastrophe that, by the way, the enemy, Satan, inaugurated in the garden. But he's able to see it all. Satan says, you, you can fix this right now. By the way, he's starving 40 days. He's fatigued. And he's 100% human. You can end all this right now. And Jesus responds with Scripture. He responds with Scripture, yet again from Deuteronomy. It's interesting. Jesus knows that one day all of the kingdoms of the world will in fact be his. Way back in Psalm 2, the first Messianic Psalm, it says, all the nations of the world, you will rule. Jesus knows that Psalm. He inspired it. In Revelation chapter 11, the center of the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become that of our Christ. And Jesus loves Handel's Messiah when they sing that because he knows that it's coming. And so Jesus has a proper perspective in the face of temptation. Yes, there's an enormous amount of good that could be done right now, but Jesus knows what we say all the time. There are worse things than death and better things than human flourishing. See, Jesus prayed for you in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And if Jesus would have taken that good option to rescue all of those people at the time, then 2,000 years later, you and you and you and y'all and me would have had no hope for redemption whatsoever. Oh, this Jesus is the man. He could have saved all those people all at once, made them happy, and then they would have died apart from redemption because he had not atoned for sin yet. And so no, he staves off that temptation. Satan previously tried to question the father's love. Now Satan tempts Jesus to question in his hope and Jesus will have none of it. Now verses 9 to 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple. The idea here is he probably places him on the southeastern corner of the temple, the highest place that overlooks the Kidron Valley that goes down and up to the Mount of Olives and says, here, this is where you're supposed to be. All Israel thought because of Malachi chapter 3, 1 that the Messiah would present himself on the temple and declare his reign. And so Satan says, hey, we're here. Let's get on with the program. Let's do this. Interesting. Puts him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for here. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's a remarkably similar temptation to Genesis 3 when he, the serpent, says to Eve oh come on, you'll not surely die. And it worked on Adam and Eve. It does not work on Jesus. Satan the serpent quotes Psalm 91 eh, mostly. He sort of redacts it a little bit. He takes it out of context. He leaves out a very important expression, and all of your ways, meaning the normative way of your life, Jesus, as the man, the perfect son of God. There's also a very interesting phrase that Satan leaves out of Psalm 91, because if you pull out Psalm 91 and you keep reading, it says, and you will tread and trample upon the serpent, which Satan sort of doesn't quote that one, because yeah. Jesus knows the word. He is the word made flesh and he knows the word made text. But make no mistake, your enemy knows the word too. And he loves to thwart it and twist it unless we really take it into us. Not just a cursory skimming over the holidays, but really know the mind of God, having the mind of Christ. Incidentally, side note, Satan is right when he says, hey, all the kingdoms of the world have been delivered over to me. He's not wrong. He's exactly right. Read Genesis 3. You know what that's telling us? It's fascinating. Satan has an accurate biblical view of creation. Satan is not an evolutionist. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for us to try to fight that fight anymore. No one else is really waving that banner that has any steam. Jesus is being tempted to question the Father's love, to question his own hope, and now to question the Father's faithfulness. Jesus will have none of it. Verse 11, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him: it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is already quoted from Deuteronomy 8 and 6. The Shema of Israel, which is kind of like the John 3.16 of Israel. If you went to an ancient Hebrew football game, there was always some guy in a clown wig holding up. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, hero of Israel, the Lord your God is one. They didn't really have clown wigs back then. But anyway, it's very, very simple. He didn't have to quote like Ezra 8, although you could. It's very, very simple. The fundamental, the main things are the main things. And Jesus quotes scripture back to him. He's prepared in advance with how to respond, not in the heat of the moment. That's instructive. See, Jesus isn't just our righteousness, though he is. He's also our example. He is prepared in advance to give an answer when the temptations come, not if they come, but when they do. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Meaning, you must not keep disobeying just to see how long it takes before you have to yield. God does not like that. See also Israel taking another lap in the wilderness. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Adam and Eve did. Jesus says, I will not. Satan tempts him to question God's faithfulness, but Jesus will have none of it. And when the devil had ended every temptation, apparently there was more, and it took place over 40 days, he finally says, You win this round, but I'll be back. And you know that he will. You know that he would. The last temptation of Christ, despite a terrible movie from many years ago, was Jesus on the cross who could have flexed a single muscle and made a parking lot of the Milky Way. But instead, as the man endured the cross, our shame and our suffering. It's incredible. And so what we see in Jesus is... The three basic virtues and elements of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. And every arrow aimed at you is in one way or another trying to take apart your faith, your hope, and your love. And you might have the tendency to think, well, it doesn't really have anything to do with anybody else. Jesus never thought that way, praise God. He always had everybody else in mind. So let me give you three quick implications of this glorious truth that Jesus is the man. What do we learn from Jesus? Number one goes like this. There are no shortcuts. We're Americans. We're Westerners. It's 21st century. We want it our way, and we don't pay retail. And we deserve to have the quickest place in line. We don't ever, no, 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 no. There are no get spiritual quick schemes. We say it more theological, more nuanced like this. There is no crown without the cross. And everything in us wants that crown just not the cross. I don't want to have to suffer or undergo hardship. There is no get spiritually mature quick scheme, and there's no quick and easy way to have the glory that we all desire, but take heart. God has promised it. It is coming. Sort of the algebraic equation of the spiritual Christian life. You can choose shame now and have glory forever, or you can try to choose to have glory now and experience shame forever. Choose wisely, but there are no shortcuts Our growth and our maturity is often most clearly seen in our capacity to willingly and even joyfully undergo delayed gratification. I see this in children, I see this in adults. A joyful willingness to experience and enjoy delayed gratification. I want that thing. I don't need that thing. With a smile on their face that is sincere. The Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, responded to the Word of God so that we could become the people of God. This, too, is to be our defense against, if you will, the dark arts. And not just for ourselves. It's never just about you and your victory. No, it's always about those around you. Always. There is no victimless crime, and sin always splatters. Always. The word of God is the sword that we wield and not just a cursory skimming of it or a surface read or a glance. We're to know what God wants, to know what he loves, to love what he loves. Trouble is that we don't really believe that we're that weak or that God is that strong or that good or that Satan is that active and angry. But we are and God is and Satan is. They're really true. This is the way we have to live life together. Second point, and I hope that this becomes our creedal confession. The thing that we say to one another, around one another, in the, the the silence of our own souls, God is good enough. I don't mean by that eh, God's good enough. No, 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 no. You lack for nothing else. Nothing else supplies. Nothing else satisfies. God and only God is good enough. It's one of the most frequent refrains of all of Scripture and necessarily so because it's one of the primary bombs from the fall of Genesis 3 is the failure to trust God or that he's really good or that he's holding out on us. It's what what Satan does. It's his auto message is that God isn't or if he is, he isn't good and he's disappointed and displeased with you and with me. The enemy operates The primary tool in his toolkit is FOMO, making you feel like you're missing out. God is holding out on me. He did it to Adam and Eve in the garden. He keeps with the same program. He's not creative. He's not coming up with new things because he doesn't have to. The same old stuff from Genesis chapter three continues to work. If I can make you believe that you're missing out, that somebody else is getting something that you should have, that God's holding out a good thing from you, he's got you. But God is good enough. We want and lack for nothing. I just said that out loud and most of you come that's right, until we leave here. And then you want everything and you feel like you lack for everything. No, we must believe that. Or we will always be characterized by striving for the next thing or experience or relationship that will supposedly bring joy and fulfillment and happiness. And now we all go through this. And I know we all know better until we don't. Don't. God is so good that he allows us to get into spots where we see that we need him, just like Israel in the wilderness thousands of years ago. Third point, temptation doesn't have to triumph. I know so many well-meaning Christians and non-Christians or pre-Christians that say, listen, this is just an area of my life. I struggle and I just can't, I can't defeat it. I can't, I just, I, I can't. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I say, how's that working out for you? Not so good. But temptation doesn't have to triumph. I know there are many gathered here, perhaps listening remotely, who will hear this later, friends and family members that struggle with patterned sin of all varying sorts, perhaps even addiction. I don't want to belittle this. I know that our world, our Western culture and cultures tend to say that addictions are chronic diseases that cannot be cured. They may only be managed. And that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. There is victory in Jesus, but it doesn't mean that it'll be easy or even complete in this lifetime. It's not that either, but it is worth the effort and the focus and the attention because Jesus is worth it and the other people around us are worth it and there is victory available. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 puts it this way. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, God will never allow you to be in a situation just like the Israelites, just like Jesus, where your only alternative or option is to sin. You might have to make some hard choices. You might have to make some decisions that hurt and that are destructive in the near term, but God is worth our obedience. You will never be in a situation where your only alternative or option is to sin. God is that sovereign, and he's good, and he knows you, and he loves you. We have to trust in that. Is it hard? Of course it is, but Jesus gets it. He actually gets it more than you and I will ever get it. It's what made C.S. Lewis finally have a conversion experience. He said, we don't know how strong temptation is. We've all surrendered to it. Jesus is the only one who knows how strong temptation is because he never gave into it. Which is why Hebrews chapter 4, 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus gets it. He understands, he sympathizes, and his ministry as we speak right now is to sit right next to the throne of of God himself and intercede for us going, oh, I know what she's going through, and it is so hard. Let's give her grace. Let's give her more of the spirit. Let's give her more of of the body. Let's give her more of the word. Jesus gets it even more acutely than we get it. I've already said it a few times, I want to say it again. Jesus isn't just our righteousness, though he is, and as marvelous as that is, he's also our example. It's an interesting picture of these three encounters with Satan. He doesn't defeat temptation by rationally arguing it with, with, with his mind head to head. Jesus doesn't go full on Mr. Spock, I see that you're tempting me with this, and rationally, realistically, that doesn't make sense. Therefore, a that doesn't work. All you end up doing when you try to argue with your sin is you talk yourself into it. You make it more attractive and then you've got all the ammunition you need to justify it. I'm making eye contact with some of you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't argue with our sin head to head. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus shows us that the battle is won by living in the center of true identity, knowing whose and who we are by God's word and opinion is how we're able to resist because sin becomes something we're no longer attracted by. Over time, it changes and other things become more appealing. It's like an adult person being tempted to eat an entire Sam's bucket of cake frosting. Ew, ew. No, you know better than that. But if you're a three-year-old, that's all you want. You'll put on a swim cap and dive right in that cake frosting. But I don't know a whole lot of full-grown adults who are mature that think, yes, that's good for me. No, that's not who you are. You're an adult person. That's not appealing to you because you have grown. You've experienced things. You have maturity. You have trajectory. And you know who and what you are. It is the same way. The more we think like God, the more we love like God, the more we want like God, the more we look at the world like God. That is the process through which we go through. That is what Jesus shows us. Do we ever defeat sin once and for all in this life? No, of course not. And there's seasons when we're weaker than others, but our thinking rightly and feeling fully in Christ matters to us and those around us. Just want to remind us in closing, Jesus is the man. Our Bibles read sometimes strangely, and you get into a section in Chronicles, or maybe you're in Nehemiah, or what's that going on in Song of Solomon? Whoa! I know, but our Bibles are telling us something marvelous from cover to cover. In the beginning, there are two people enjoying and experiencing perfect fellowship and communion with one another and with God Himself and a perfect created environment. And it's very good. But then sin happens, and wreckage and destruction, and the sin and temptation only leads to more sin and temptation. And the consequence of sin is more sin and temptation. And the consequence of sin is more sin and temptation. And we've seen now for millennia as the human species continues to tumble in violence and destruction, and it comes apart and it grieves the heart of God until finally he sends the man who takes into him all the brokenness, all the horror all the betrayal, all of the shame, all of the hurt. You might say it this way, the covenant maker became the covenant breaker so that we covenant breakers could be right with the covenant keeper. And then you read the end of the story. See, our Bible's actually going somewhere very purposefully, very intentionally. At the very end of the story, what do you see? A perfect environment, and there is God fully represented in his triune reality, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that binds all together. And there is no temple because God himself is the temple, the dwelling of God and man together in our neighborhood. But there's not just two people. (laughs) There's multitudes upon multitudes. Every tribe, tongue, every clan, every language, every race, every size, even people with freckles. Because Jesus has done it and he will do it. Jesus is the man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus, and it is in his name and because of his finished work that I can pray these things, and for his glory. Father, I thank you for how he is revealed in Scripture. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you through the finished work of your son, at the prompting of your spirit, would you lead them now irresistibly into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus? They would trust with all of their life and being and put all of their weight in the center of that confession that Jesus is the man, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is divine, but he is the man that you sent to undo all the mess we had made. I pray, God, for salvation to come to this house. And for that person or persons, whoever they are, that they would have the courage to speak to someone they know or love or trust about what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the glory, the grace of the gospel, of what you have done to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.